Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. We are in Ezra chapter 7. I'm going to go through the whole chapter. It's got a letter from Artaxerxes, uh, which I think is phenomenal as far as the detail, the history that's around it and within it, some of the details. The authenticity of it is, is very easy to uh, you know, verify or correlate with other documents and events in history. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and just read a few verses here to get started. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to go for some background information here. Uh, remember, the temple was finished in 516. The celebration was 515, where they celebrated the dedication and the Passover was 515. Uh, 57 years has gone by, and now Ezra is going to appear on the scene. And it begins like this. After these things... And that goes all the way back throughout the, everything that was written there. He's not going right back to the, the very last year, but the last thing that was written, which was the Passover of 515. After these things during the reign of Artaxerxes, and you can see <clears throat> Darius was the king in 515. Xerxes has come and gone, had his 20-year reign. And then Artaxerxes comes. Uh, Ezra, the son of Shariah, and it gives you a list of all the the priest that he was related to, we're going to look at that, going all the way back to Aaron, you know, at the time of the Egyptian exodus, and identifies him as he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. And it's going to, we're going to talk about that more. But on the page one of your notes, uh, this is the year 458 right here. And we've jumped these 57 years, and some things that have taken place, I've got written down here, just kind of captures the essence of the age. Uh, it, number one is, in 499 B.C., Lydia rebelled against Darius, but the rebellion was put down. If you look at this right here, you can see the map over here. You've got Babylon, uh, Susa, Ecbectana. And I've got a map on your notes, which you may want to refer to. We'll look at it again later on page 5 at the top. Uh, that's just an interesting map right there. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, to travel from Susa, you can see, all the way over to past, uh, uh, you know, Carchemish up into Asia Minor, all the way over to the coast of the Greek coast, or the coast, the Aegean Sea, to Sardis, right in the area of the seven churches that John is going to write to in Revelation. That was the Persian Royal Road. And this plays a big part, just this image plays a big part in what Ezra is going to be doing as far as traveling with these people and this letter. This is not, when you think about these large empires, especially the Persian Empire, it's not chaos. It's not out of control. It's, it's highly structured. And there's people in different places that are in charge. And there's, there's jurisdiction. And there is law that has to be followed. Uh, and on the flip end of it, to disobey sometimes is, is death. But this was from Susa to Sardis, the Aegean Sea. So going from, you know, basically the Persian Gulf to the Aegean Sea, 1,700 miles was the road. Uh, stations with fresh horses were stationed every 15 miles. Now, this is not how Ezra traveled. Ezra's going to go from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem, 900 miles, and it's going to take him four months. We'll look at that again. But this was when they wanted to communicate with their departments around the Persian Empire. They could travel this route in seven days. They could travel 1,700 miles in seven days down this road. And this would be a series of horsemen 
with a series of fresh horses. You know, this is your Pony Express uh, Persian style. And again, every 15 miles, they'd have a fresh horse, and the letter could be handed off. Uh, they switch horses, and that's just interesting to see that. Uh, and it'd be similar. You could go down into Egypt. But nonetheless, Lydia would be on that map. It would be right around Cappadocia. Uh, that group in 499, Lydia rebelled against Darius. They put that down. Between 490 and 479, so between, in this time period right here, uh, there's going to be what is called the Greek Wars. Uh, the Persians battled back and forth with the Greeks for territory between 490 to 497. Uh, in 485, Darius dies. His son Xerxes begins to rule. So he's going to rule from 485 to 465. It's a 20-year reign. Xerxes is reigning this period right here. Xerxes is your king of the book of Esther. So if we were actually going to do it in chronological order, and I know you'd just like, no, because we started Ezra, then we went over and did Haggai and Zechariah. Now we're back to Ezra, and now that we've done a couple chapters, it's time to do the book of Esther. But I know you would like, stop the madness. So just realize, if we want to understand this news chronological order, we need to read Esther. And uh, Ezra, or or Xerxes, is uh, going to, at this time, when he begins to rule and reign, he's going to begin to try to, the Greeks are coming across uh, into Asia Minor, and the Persians are expanding into Europe. And so that's the battlefront there, that's the confrontation. Uh, Darius fought, and they went back and forth. He didn't really make ground. He gained a little bit. They'd lose some. But Xerxes is going to pick up his father's vision of conquering into Greece. And that's what the, chapter 1 of Esther is all about. He's got all of his military men there. They're showing him all the stuff. Here's our plan. And uh, the people of the land, uh, oh, let's see. I'm going to go down to uh, oh, 480. It'd be after five years. Xerxes actually crosses the Helen spot. In other words, he crosses the Aegean Sea with 360,000 soldiers. This is Xerxes, the mighty Persian military, with 700 ships to defeat the Spartans. He defeats them at Thermopylae. Now, this is where you're going to have that movie, 300. The movie 300 is right there. Uh, Thermopylae. They conquered Attica, and then they burnt, destroyed, plundered Athens, which is why Alexander the Great, when he gets over to Persia, is going to plunder Susa, or, or Persepolis. Where's Persepolis on the map? Uh, plunder Persepolis because of what happened at Athens. So there's this, in, in 480, there was this wave of victory. The Greeks have crossed over. Xerxes uh, hasn't met Esther yet, but he's, he's winning the battle. But as it continued, the Greeks, facing those 700 ships of the, uh, of the Persians, they grouped together because they had been different. Yeah, as you go back and study Sparta and the way the Greek structure was, the little kingdom villages would fight each other. The city-states would fighting. They're always fighting within each other. They realized they had a bigger enemy, so they united. This, now, this is right up in here. This is where Philip, uh, Alexander's dad, is going to unite Macedonia and Greece. Uh, he's going to end up getting assassinated because he wants to march across and attack Persia. The, you know, they've got the, the conservatives and the liberals and different groups fighting in there. They end up killing Philip's, Philip Alexander's dad, and Alexander takes over as a young man and then actually conquers uh, the Persians. But all that is coming in the future. At this point, the Persians unite in 479, 
So, you know, 480, Xerxes invades, has some victories. 479, they unite, and they defeat those 700 ships. Uh, and it says right here, uh, they combined their fleets, defeating the Persians at the Battle of Salamis. This followed by victor- victorious Greek attack at the Battle of Plataea, where Xerxes was decisively defeated. This ended Xerxes' attempt to conquer Greece and Persia, abandon Europe. So in 480... Xerxes, after showing off his equipment in uh, his military equipment in Esther chapter 1, he invades, has success, Greece finally unites together and drives him out in 479. So when you go back to, ta- you turn the page from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of Esther, in chapter 2, chapter 1, Xerxes is the mighty king marching on Greece, going to expand the empire. Chapter 2, He's the defeated king. He has abandoned Europe. They've withdrawn. And now you've got Greeks coming across the Aegean Sea, settling in Asia Minor. And he comes back home totally crushed. So Xerxes of 485, 480 is a different Xerxes than in 479 as far as being the warrior. Now, just so you see this right here, in 479, uh, Esther becomes the queen of Persia when she is chosen by Xerxes. He comes back home and realizes, uh, you know, he, he put away his queen Vashti because she would not appear. He asks his council of seven what, the, what he should do. I'll show you that tonight. There's always his council of seven wise men. He asks them what to do. They say, put her away. Otherwise, all of our wives are going to start acting like this. So he puts her away. He comes back in 479 after being crushed by the, the Greeks. He not only has lost his military, lost his navy, He's lost his wife, so he, he has a contest to see who's going to be his wife, and that's Esther. Now, 460, with the help of Athens, that's where we're at right now. 460, see, Ezra's 485, so Xerxes runs his time out. Artaxerxes takes over, and then in 460, right around the time that Artaxerxes is taken early in his reign, the, look, look right there, uh, with the, 460, with the help of Athens... And the Greeks, the Egyptians revolt against Persia. So now, down here in Egypt, now this is important for our story. Down here in Egypt, they've, you know, they've, Cambyses went way down and conquered Egypt. Cyrus started, Cambyses finished it. Uh, this is Persian territory. But with the help of the Greeks, who've driven the Persians back out of their territory, Athens has come down, supported Egypt, and Egypt has started a revolt, and by 459, uh, all the Persians are driven out of there. So they've been driven out of Europe. They're now being driven out of Africa, and that's 459. And now that sets the stage here for Ezra. When we read this letter, it's an amazing letter of how much authority, how much power Ezra has. But you understand where he's at. He's going to that land, Judah, which is the buffer zone between Egypt and and Syria. It's exactly what's going to end up being the problem after Alexander dies, his generals split up his kingdom. The solutions are going to be in the north, the Ptolemies are going to be in in Egypt, and they're going to use Judah as a buffer zone. They're going to war over who's got that because it controls the trade routes. It's that little land bridge. Well, that's going to explain, we're not just reading a Bible story tonight, we are, but Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son, has inherited a kingdom that's lost the West. And now, during his reign in his fourth, fifth year, he's losing the South. And it's like, and if it continues, it's just going to like a cancer keep eating away at his empire. So Ezra, in a sense, could be seen as 
a very powerful individual with great authority, go down there and fix that, solve my border crisis so we don't keep getting eaten away as a cancer. And so, yeah, we've got a Bible story. We've got the restoration of the, uh, of the law of Moses being brought back. We've got a, someone from the line of Aaron, a priest, uh, coming back into the, for the law of Moses. But we also have Artaxerxes sending someone back that's going to enforce Persian law and have authority. It, he's going to tell them two things. We're going to see it over and over. You can go back and teach them the law of your God, and you can teach them the law of the Persians. These are your responsibilities. Make sure and you've got absolute authority with the law of your land, the law of your God, and you've got absolute authority with the Persian government. And in a little capsule in the middle of the Bible, it just sounds like this isolated incident, but in the Persian Empire, it's, it's going to solve the buffer zone. So that's kind of where we're at. Uh, 458, Xerxes sends Ezra to Judea to teach, practice, enforce law and order. And I'm going to say it again. He's supposed to teach, he's supposed to practice himself, and have the people practice. And if they don't practice it, he is supposed to enforce the law and order. And that law and order includes two things. The Jewish law, according to the traditions of the people, or the law of Moses, which is the law of the God. Now, this is not unique. I'll try to show you as we go through the notes. This is what the Persians did. When they started in 539, 538, Cyrus 538, sending out the decree, sending everybody back, they were sending people back to their lands to rebuild their temples, worship their gods of the countries. That's their vision. The God, different gods of different territories. And so go back, make your gods happy, and whatever the law of your land is, it'd be like saying, whatever your cultural standards are, enforce them. Now, as long as your cultural standards didn't threaten the Persian Empire or violate the Persian law, we can, we can work this together. I mean, you can be a Christian and follow the Constitution. They can fit together. So you can be pro-Christian, pro-Constitution. And that's the way the Persians were. If, there, if there's no uh, conflict, there's no problem. In fact, both are important because the last thing we want to do is send you people back to your home country and then you fail to worship your God successfully, and now you're part of my empire. Now the gods are mad. You've got chaos. You don't have law and order. And now we've got not just a revolt in Lydia or losing the West, we, a revolt in Egypt. Now we've got revolts taking place throughout the empire. So they saw, which is not amazing if it's the 1950s, 60s, 70s, they want law and order decently, everybody in a straight row, stopping at the stop signs, following the laws of the land, they don't want just chaos and breakdown of homes and structure and all the traditional values. They want, if there's a traditional value, that's the strength of our society. We're in an age where we want to break down the traditions and have something new and progressive. Uh, the ancient kingdoms, they were like, no, we do not want progressive. We want the way it was for all these generations. That's what got us here. Don't change this. And again, he was willing to accept different cultures, but make sure you do what is foundational. And that's the first thing, point J1. Uh, here's what it says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 23. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, Artaxerxes writes, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. And Artaxerxes is going to have 18 sons. The second thing was the Persian law, which was the law of Artaxerxes. And here it is in Ezra 7, verse 26. Whoever will not obey the law of your God 
and the law of the king. So in other words, will not obey the law of your God or the law of Artaxerxes. The law of Yahweh, the law of Artaxerxes. This is Artaxerxes' words. Let judgment be strictly executed on. Now, this is not passive. We're going to stand by and let God bring judgment. This is a command. This is a written document for Ezra. You, my friend, are responsible to teach them, practice it, and then enforce it. And if they don't, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So Ezra, this is what he's telling him in this letter. Ezra, you're going back to Judah. You've got two responsibilities. The law of your fathers. And again, that would be for any country that was there, whatever your traditions are. In this case, it's the law of Moses, which is amazing, like I said last week, that they can appeal to the, the law of their fathers, an ancient law. What is the law of your land? Well, we've got it right here. It's, it's the first five books of the Bible. It's the law of Moses. They had it. Our text says, well, then take it back and enforce it. And then also enforce my laws. Now, if someone doesn't follow your laws, the law of your God, or they do not follow my laws, Ezra, you can start with imprisonment. You can go to confiscation of their property. You can banish them out of the empire. Or if need be, you can kill them. But whatever, get over there and make sure you teach and practice and enforce the law of your God and the law of the land, the law of the Persians. That, I mean, that's amazing stuff. It's like John Kelvin in Geneva. Okay cheap shot but nonetheless okay uh point three there in the land of judea these 57 years would include some of those things have been hostility we looked at that last week uh there's been immoral interaction when he goes back here and finds these people so we're talking about an empire but we're also talking obviously about the jews in uh judea uh they're they're they've slipped From those great days of the temple opening, they've dropped into immorality. They've dropped into compromise. They don't know the law. Not everybody's got a scroll or a Bible. It's got to be taught to them. Uh, And they've been, again, oppressed by the people of the land. We have not forgot about the people of the land. Uh, So, chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. I'm going to read through this list of, 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 of priests once again. It's interesting for a couple reasons. One, it's, it's Ezra claiming his authority to be a priest. Uh, I've got on the page here, chapter, page 2, chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Now after this, after those things, the events of 515, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Shariah, uh, and it goes through all those names right there, all the way down to Aaron, the chief priest. There's almost 1,000 years of chronology or genealogy. If you go from 1440 uh, B.C. of the Exodus down to 458, uh, you've almost got, you've got actually uh, 982 years of Ezra's genealogy. There are 16 names listed there. Now, over in that box on the right side of the page, I went to 1 Chronicles, and there you've got the list going just the opposite direction, going from Aaron... And then Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithamar. If you remember, Nadab and Abihu, they burned bad incense in the, in, on the incense altar in the holy place, and something happened. It exploded or something, but they dropped dead, and Aaron was so dragged their bodies out of the camp. They burnt the wrong. They didn't follow directions. 
and Aaron couldn't mourn or anything, just threw his kids out in the city dump. Uh, but then Eliezer, and then Ithamar continued. Eliezer was the father of Phineas, and if you'll read that list backwards, you know, you've got Aaron, I'm looking on the left, you've got Aaron, Eliezer, Phineas, uh, and then it goes to Abishu, and that matches, Buki matches, and then Uzai, and then Zariah matches, I'm reading it backwards, and then you've got Marioth, Marioth and uh, Amariah is skipped by Ezra, Amariah is in the Chronicles, uh, maybe, yeah, uh, Amariah is there, and Amariah uh, is uh, the father of Ahitub, I'm going to look at some of these names, Ahitub was around in uh, David's time, and then one of the priests after Ahitub uh, was Zadok, Zadok was a priest, but when uh, uh, Solomon became king, he appointed Zadok to be the high priest, because Amaziah, the current high priest, another guy, sided with uh, uh, Adonijah to be the king, and so he got put away, and Zadok takes over, and Zadok is really the faithful family as it goes through. Zadok, now notice right there, after Zadok, Zadok jumps in Ezra's right to Selim, when I go backwards, then over in Chronicles, you skip Amaziah, Azariah, Johanan, all the way down to Azariah, Am- Amariah, Ahitub. Wait, wait, I'm going the wrong way here. What did I do? Yeah, yeah. And you get to another Zadok, and that Zadok is the father of Shalom. Now, whatever happened there, I don't know, but Ezra skips all those priests, and they would be in his family line if, if it's a, an heir or something. And I didn't see any comments on why those were skipped in Ezra. But nonetheless, that continues to Shalom, and then Hilkiah, and he's going to work with Josiah, Azariah, and then Azariah is the father of Shariah. Now, Shariah, we'll talk about it again, is going to be killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Shariah was part of what was Zedekiah's high priest, sided against and disobeyed Jeremiah, and was taken up to, uh, uh, up north, up uh, Oh, uh, Ribla, right there, up by Hamath, Ribla, where Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he was at Ribla. Nebuzar Aden was the general down here enforcing, because Nebuchadnezzar had several wars going at the same time. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't like, you know, light a match and throw it in Jerusalem, or knock down a wall, or blow a trumpet. He was up in Ribla, just giving commands to Nebuzar Aden. Well, this high priest, Sariah, was captured along with several people and taken up, including Zedekiah and his sons, taken up to Ribla where he met Nebuchadnezzar, which I guess would have to be a terrifying experience. Uh, and that's where he was executed. So Sariah, uh, which is listed as Ezra, it says Ezra was a son of Sariah. Sariah was killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but if you go down into Chronicles, Sariah was the father of Jozadek, and Jozadek, it says in Chronicles, was deported when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So Jozadek, his father was executed, but Jozadek was taken into captivity. Now in captivity, you know this, you know the name Jozadek because Jozadek is going to have a son in Babylon while he's in captivity. His name is Joshua. And Joshua is going to be coming back in 538, with Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, is the son of Jozadek, 
whose father was Sarai who got killed. So Joshua, the high priest with Zechariah or Zerubbabel in 538 all the way up to 520 where these guys are prophesying, Haggai, Zechariah is talking to him. His father was taken out of Jerusalem into captivity as a young man. His grandfather was killed by Nebuchadnezzar up at Riblah as one of the rebels. So he comes back. Now what's interesting is Sariah is the father of Jozadek, who's the father of Joshua, who came back. But you go over to Ezra's line, they've got the same, uh, if you would say, uh, Jozadek, his father was Sariah. Well, Ezra is the son of Sariah also. If you read it straight like that, and it seems to be going generation by generation, Ezra would be the brother of Jozadek, or the uncle of the high priest Joshua. And I've got that written down here somewhere, um, looking down here at my little notes. Um, yeah, look on middle of page three. Ezra 7, 1 says, Ezra was the son of Shariah. What does this mean? Options are, Ezra was born in Jerusalem, uh, the son of executed high priest Shariah, and his younger brother, and was the younger brother of Jozadek, the one that was taken into captivity. Or Ezra's mother may have been pregnant when Ezra was, uh, before he was born, was taken into captivity. So when her, his father was being executed, his mom, who was pregnant, was being taken into captivity, which would make him the brother of Jozadek and the uncle of Joshua. And in 458, uh, Ezra's 128 years old. Okay, I mean, that's, if you read the gen, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'd be like, that's kind of old, <coughs> especially doing what Ezra's doing. The other option, two options, I don't have an answer for this. Ezra was the grandson or great-grandson of Sariah, and his father's name, a brother of Jozadek, is left out. Ezra would then be a cousin of Joshua High Priest. So in other words, his, he just skips his father, who is a no-name in Babylonian captivity, and just goes from his grandfather right to his name, which means there's a, a brother of Jozadek missing, and that makes uh, Joshua the High Priest during all this time the cousin of Ezra who shows up. Some way they're related. The other point is Ezra's father, Sarai, is not the same person. So you got two Sarais, you just got two different people. One of them was executed. The other one was possibly named in Babylonian captivity after his executed grandfather, uh, which would make uh, Joshua's brother is Sariah. So the high priest has a brother named Sariah, which Jozadek named after his father. Now, Sariah has a son named Ezra, which would then make Ezra Joshua's nephew. Now, you look at that and go, we came out on a Tuesday night to hear this ridiculous stuff. Well, I spent all day last week trying to figure it out, so deal with it. Uh, I, I just find it interesting because somehow it's all connected, and Ezra makes a big deal about it. Uh, there's other things you can see in there. Uh, going back to uh, page two. Uh, <coughs> oh, there's other notes on there. But anyway, that's the lineage right there. Uh, <coughs> number three on page three, Hilkiah, that's mentioned there, was the high priest under Josiah. Zadok was a priest under David, and Solomon appointed him as high priest. Uh, the Zadok line that goes through Ezra became the Sadducees. This Zadok line that goes up, they became high priest. In Solomon's day, Zadok was just a priest under David. 
but when uh, the high priest that was under David sided with uh, uh, Adonijah, Abiathar, he was exiled by Solomon, and the high priest was given to Zadok. This Zadok, his lineage goes through Ezra all the way up until 171 B.C., when it's replaced by the Seleucids giving it to someone outside the line and ending the priesthood. They killed the last high priest, uh, and they, they, they just replaced someone from a normal tribe. And that's, that's now the beginning of the Maccabean Revolt because the Seleucids are coming in. These guys, they continued as a family, but they never had the priesthood again. They separated and became the Sadducees. That's where the name comes from. Zadok comes to become Sadducees. From there, a group broke off and went to the Qumran community with the intention of keeping the, the priestly line pure and restoring the priesthood to Zadok. And so when you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, those are descendants that were eliminated from the priesthood, come up through the Sadducees, go to the Qumran community, and are waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the restoration, waiting for Zadok to continue the priesthood. So that kind of ties you all the way back to the New Testament up through Ezra. Okay, enough of that. Uh, turn the page, and we are on oh, page four. Ezra is going to be called a scribe, and this is important. Uh, the scribe is going to be a secretary, and he's very skilled. He can write. He can read. He knows multiple languages. And he's going to be appointed an official position by Artaxerxes as being in charge of this area, so it's not just, he doesn't, he's not like a, a governor, but he is a scribe or a secretary in, court, in charge of recording and then overseeing all that is being done. And so he, uh, in a sense, is the eyes and ears of Artaxerxes in the land of Judah. So now on page five, um, this is his return. There's more details on this return, if you know you can't wait. Chapter eight is going to give you more details of the actual journey. This is just Ezra writing about the letter. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. <clears throat> now, throughout this, in, in Ezra Nehemiah, these people are going to be called Israel or the people of Israel. That is a, a, a purposeful word. It's trying to unite, reunite the 12 tribes. This is going to be... Uh, the covenant people with the covenant with Yahweh, they're going to be the, the ones, they have the theology, and this is going to be the people that they're going to. Now, they're going to the land of Judah. The people are never called the people of Judah in, in the sense of uh, a, a single tribe. But because it is in the land of Judah, Judah's going to become a uh, geography or a political uh, term for the, the location. It's more of, this is the location. They are living in Judah. It's the people of Israel. This again has, has got theology, covenant. It's the United Twelve Tribes, but they're living in the province of Judea. Even coins, they have Persian coins with the province of Judea stamped on it and their symbol. And so as you read this, you'll see Israel, Judah. When you see Israel, they're talking about the people. When it talks about Judah, it's not talking about the tribe of Judah. It's talking about the land of Judea, which is a province that Ezra is going to be in charge of and more. Uh, and they send the singers and the gatekeepers. And all these singers and gatekeepers, the gatekeepers would be the Levites uh, that are going to protect the gates. The, the singers would be people that were set in place by David, uh, the courses of the priests, the courses of the, 
the, the singers. And there'll be a rotation system. The priest will come in, serve two weeks, rotate out, serve two weeks. You don't just punch in every day. You go to the temple every day. There are so many that you've only got a two-week period, and you have a rotation of singers, a rotation of Levites, rotation of priests. They live in, out throughout the land, but they rotate in. Uh, and you can see that taking place with John the Baptist's father when it was his turn to serve, and then by lot he was chosen to go in and do something not everybody got to do, and that was burn incense on the altar in the holy place. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of God was on him. Again, that's giving God the credit, God the grace, that he made this journey. Uh, He's going to travel without an armed escort. We're going to see in chapter 8 that he's going to say, because he was so confident of his God and so explained to Artaxerxes what was going on, he then was kind of afraid or ashamed to go to Artaxerxes. He says, yeah, but we're going to need an armed guard because we're afraid. It's like he says, I was so confident that God wanted us to go back. And Artaxerxes is like, well, let's go get it done. Well, can I have some military protection? He says, I couldn't ask for that. We just had to do it on our own, without a military escort. Now, Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is going to come by in uh, 445, 446, 445 is when he's going to leave, he's going to come with uh, a military guard. He's going to come with forces, which is another story. For Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it and teach it, teach his statutes and, and the rules of Israel. So three things. He's studying, he's practicing, and he's teaching it. Artaxerxes has him go one step further. Now enforce it. And again, like I said, we're going to get into this book and there's going to be some things that are going to be fairly amazing. Some details on what I just read. The journey from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem's 500 miles, but they went up the Euphrates River and then turned and came down the coast. 900 mile journey. It's going to take four months. Uh, you got the dates that they're leaving on. They're leaving on April 8th and arriving on August 4th. Uh, it was 119 days, but you're also got to consider, we're going to see it in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, and 8, verse 31, maybe next week. Oh, no class next week. No class next week. We did decide we will have class next Monday. Next Sunday and Monday we'll have class, but no class next week, 4th of July, so no class next week. Uh, but when we get to Ezra chapter 28, verse 21, they're going to all be assembled and ready to go, but before they go... They're going to take 11 days and pray and fast before they begin the journey. And they're going to leave on uh, chapter 8, verse 31. So it's 119 days, but the first 11 days, they spent praying and fasting. Okay, turn the page. Ezra chapter 7, verse 11 through 26. This begins the letter of Artaxerxes. And it includes Ezra's commission and the documents. So he's got his commission. This is what I want you to do. But within there are going to be documents for the provision for traveling. We're going to see, and it's, it's documented throughout the ancient world. I'll try to show you some examples. Uh, the, the king could write a letter and give someone permission and even some credits, if you would, you know, like cash or some kind of credit, and they could travel and go from station to station, buy what they needed, and spend the king's money with some kind of credit system. Ezra's going to be included on this. Here's your paperwork. And here's your credit for your expenses. This is what you can buy when you get there. And they've got to give it to you because it's my stuff. And this is my credits. They, you, they've got to exchange it for you. 
Uh, it's kind of like having the king's credit card in a sense. Um, and here's the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes of Israel. So he's a priest, a scribe, but he also knows the law of the Lord. Artaxerxes is also going to say, and you also know the law of the land. Now, <clears throat> this is interesting if you don't mind. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, you remember the idea that there's going to be uh, 490 years or 77s. You remember that's, that account? We could read it, 77s. So there's a 490 uh, weeks or years. Uh, then it says there's going to be 62 sevens and another seven, or which equals 69 sevens, which is 483 years. And Daniel says this, Daniel, back here, says the day is coming where there's going to be a decree. There's going to be something official. The king is going to make a declaration. King, he means a pagan king. He's going to make a declaration to start this countdown. That after 483 clicks go by, you're going to have the Christ is going to come. The prince will arrive. So there are two ways, there's two basic ways of figuring this. There's a thousand ways of figuring, even reinterpreting this to mean something else. But I think it means 490 years. The difference is going to be, are they solar years, which would be, what do we say, 365 days? Or are they lunar which are 12 months of 30, which is at 360, and you're going to have that difference right there. And then every once in a while, you're going to have to redo it. So you've got lunar or solar years. Now, this is, this is the facts right here. If you go with Ezra's letter, and Ezra's going to arrive with the letter, if you use the year 457, Ezra's letter, and you add to that 483 solar years, you get the year, this is 457 B.C., notice this number is bigger than this year, so you're going to have to get 26 A.D. That's John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus. If you say, I don't think this letter is it, then you can go to Nehemiah's, the decree that Nehemiah gets from Artaxerxes right here in 445, and you take 445 and you add 483 lunar years, you end up in 26 A.D. So I've always gone with the Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, for the, to, the, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to be the countdown. But if you're an Ezra person, you could use this date and just got to switch from solar or lunar years because they're counting 490 and how many days are in each of the weeks. You know, that's what I mean, the word means, weeks. It means a period of, of, of time. Okay, anyway, that's what that point one under Ezra chapter seven eleven. the copy letter may begin the countdown. Um, it's interesting, Artaxerxes writes the letter and Artaxerxes gives the decree. So my guess is Artaxerxes is the one who starts the countdown for the Jewish date to the Messiah that Daniel prophesied. Chapter 7, verse thir uh, 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, um, 
to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God. Notice that phrase, king of kings, is in your text. But if you look on the very back page, and I want you to do this, very back page right here, uh, you've got, it's not like an, uh, an amazing thing because it's a common phrase, but you see the bottom picture on page 10, and you got the cuneiform writing going around the bowl, the wine bowl. It says, Artaxerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries. Nonetheless, the point right there, king of kings in cuneiform is the same phrase that you see right there in your book that is now beginning with chapter 7, verse 11, right there, that it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. And the, this whole letter is going to be in Aramaic. So we're actually looking at, Ezra is actually looking at and recording an Aramaic document. Uh, and in that, it's got the phrase King of Kings, which in, in the Aramaic is Melech Melchia, which in, in the cuneiform is written on that rim of that bowl. So you've got a little correlation there. He calls himself King of Kings on the wine bowl that Nehemiah is giving him. He calls himself King of Kings in the letter he's giving to Ezra. Again, it's, I mean, if you're the king of an empire, you're going to call yourself King of Kings. So it's not like a you know, shot-in-the-dark amazing feature. It's, you know, kind of typical, I would guess. Um, <clears throat> it says... Uh, the, the scribe of the law of God. Okay, point, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So first of all, if you're a Jew and you want to leave and you want to transfer, you're ready to go. Uh, that, that's point A and B is where I write down. Israel is used 24 times by Ezra. Jude is a geogra geographical term, and you can see the uses there. Uh, it's used four times in Ezra, all four times as a geographical place. Chapter 7, verse 14. For you were sent by the king and his seven counselors. See the king, Artaxerxes, and his seven counselors, or his advisors. Now this seven is very interesting. He says right here, that it's not just Artaxerxes that's making this decision, but these seven counselors have agreed, yes, send Ezra back. Uh, the seven counselors or seven advisors match the historical accounts of the Persians. Herodotus, the historian, the Greek historian, mentions these seven counselors. Xenophon, a historian of the ancient world, mentions the seven counselors of the king. And if you don't mind, Esther chapter 1 verse 14, when uh, they're having the big drunken party, all the military equipment's out and people are shooting off fireworks and and all everybody's having a great party. And then uh, uh, Xerxes, as he's getting ready to go, first of all, defeat Greece and then eventually be humiliated by him, before he begins that, that journey, that, that military adventure, says, hey, send Vashti out here. And, and not, we'll have to look at that to try and explain. He wants her to come out and perform. He wants her to come out and dance. He wants her to come out and show her beauty. Uh, all the way from, you know, stripping down to dancing or taking her veil off whatever it is that he wants her to do, and you can go back and study that. But she says, no. There's a line of thinking. She says, no, because she's pregnant with Artaxerxes. But that, that, that's, no, that's another guess. But anyway, the whole point, Xerxes says, come out and show the people how beautiful you are. And she says, I ain't coming to your drunken party for whatever reason. Um, Here's the verse, chapter 1, verse 14. Then the king said to the wise men 
who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being. In other words, when she won't come out, guess where, guess where he turns in Esther chapter 1, verse 14? When Vashti won't come out and Xerxes, the king of kings, the king of the world, who's going to invade Greece, his wife won't come out. Where does he turn? To the seven. And it says it right there. And in this case right here, the men next to him being, now again, if you want for entertainment purposes, I'll read their names. Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maurice, Marcina and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persian media who saw the king's face and sat first in his kingdom. Nonetheless, the whole point for showing you that is in chapter 7, verse 14, for you are sent by the king in his letter, he's writing, you are sent by the king and his seven counselors. And that is not just making that up. Two Greek historians record that. Esther's book records that. And here's Artaxerxes' letter saying, I've got seven counselors, and the kings of Persia don't do anything unless they've got permission from their seven counselors. Now, I'm not sure what would happen if you disagreed with the king. Uh, he'd execute you and find another guy, but uh, I'm not sure how that works. Okay. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. Chapter 7, verse 15 is the Persian offering. They're saying, the Artaxerxes and his seven consorts say, and again, do not think this is unique. Like, oh, they all became Christians, or they all became Jews. They all, they, they're doing this for everybody who's going back and says, we've got a God. Well, we want you to have a temple. Find the foundation stones. Build in the right place. Follow your traditions. If you can't remember them, get a peop, group of people together and write and codify them. They're going to be big in codifying. I'll show you some examples of codifying the laws of the ancient cultures. So you start doing and living right. We're about there. Our world's about there where it's like, okay, stop the madness. Where's Artaxerxes? Okay, codify the laws. Stop the madness. Go back to what made you great originally and, and enforce those laws. That's what he's doing. He's trying to save. They've gone through the Babylonian, the Persians, they all are the, the Assyrians and the Persians, and both the Assyrians and the Babylonians, I meant, both of them ended in drunken parties of just chaos. And uh, the, the Persians come in and go, okay, that's not us. Go back and reestablish law and order. We're about that place in our country right now or our world. Nonetheless, um, <clears throat> these guys, all the silver, gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. So Ezra's going to be taking back the king's offering. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So he says, you're going to be taking back my offerings. You're going to be taking back any free will offerings that your people want to send back to your temple. In other words, they're going to be going back. Now here's what he is right here. With this money, then you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs, and their grain offerings, and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. So again, some people, scholars, will say, well, this sounds, this sounds so Jewish, like he knows the Jewish law, the bulls, the rams, the drink offerings. A lot of it's typical of the cultures, but also understand 
he's writing this under the oversight of Ezra. Ezra has probably wrote him a draft letter. This is what I'll need. Nehemiah is going to do the same thing. Well, what do you need? Nehemiah says it. Okay, well, there you go. There you go. Turn in your requisition form. I'll sign it. And you go pick it up. And so the fact that this is Jewish sounding, shouldn't, it's, it's, it's Artaxerxes' letter, obviously written for Ezra. But all these things right here, are, are they're going to be bringing these all back and offering them. I've got this written down. This is uh, right there on, this, on the picture there. I, I copied that off the internet. These are papyrus documents from Elephantine in Egypt. It, it's going to be further south down here. Some of the Jews fled, as you know, with Jeremiah to Egypt. They ended up settling down there, that, having a Jewish community, building some kind of a temple. They got an ark of their own. Some people think the original ark's down there, but they had their own, own community. Uh, this is an actual piece of papyri written to those people by Darius II. He's coming, 423. Uh, Darius right in, right in here, uh, 423 to 404, saying the same thing to the Jews down here in Egypt. And basically what it says is, uh, the Passover papyrus ordering the Jews to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and when he authorized them to rebuild the temple, he wrote, let meal offering, incense, and burnt offerings be offered upon your altar of God, Yahoo, in your name. So in other words, Darius even is going down, way down in Egypt and worshiping Yahweh down in Egypt. And that's a piece of papyri that says something very similar. Whatever seems good to you, your brothers, to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. You're not going to spend it all, so, but all that money I'm sending is going to go into your temple. So Artaxerxes is, uh, I mean, he's making a decree it would appear, that's going to start the countdown for the Messiah's appearance in 26 AD, but he's also sending goodwill offerings to the temple. Chapter 7, verse 19, the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. Some of these may be the ones they're bringing back that were taken by the Babylonians, but again, those already went in 537. These may be just additional gift offerings. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. That's the credit card. Meaning, there is whatever you, when you get there, these are the things I'm sending with you, and here's a credit card, and there's places to buy it. Just my card's good at these different locations. Buy it and offer it to your God. Chapter 7, verse 21. Now, that, that's again describing his mission. Chapter 7, verse 21. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree. And see where it says, I make a decree? That could be the beginning of the countdown. Uh, that'd be a good place to start. Make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. So all my officials, personal officials on this side of the Euphrates, I make this decree. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. In other words, if Ezra comes to you and shows you this letter and says, I need it, then you give it to him. And he's talking about all the treasure. Now, that was similar to what these guys said, uh, Cyrus had said, but it was neglected, and there's no follow-up on it. Ezra is going to follow up on it. Uh, this part of the letter addresses the trans-Euphrates authorities. Point two, listen to this. 3,000 travel texts from the Persian capital over here of Persepolis still exist today. There's 3,000 travel texts like this that have been found that record these travel ration texts, report the daily operations of a detailed and developed travel system that included transportation, communication, and the ability to exchange credits for value. 
And uh, that's why I showed you that, that original road, that 1,700-mile road going all the way across the empire. And so right here is buying in. And there's 3,000 today. Well, this isn't even possible. They've got 3,000 documents that's showing this exactly what they're doing, like just leftover receipts and things. Okay, chapter 7, verse 22. Up to how much is this credit card? There's a limit on the credit card. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much? Unlimited salt. Now, what is this for? Is this for them to eat? No, this is for them to take an offer in their temple. This is the king preparing his offering. And here's 100 talents of silver. Here you can do this. We have what we call a decimal system. Decimal, did I spell that right? Decimal 10. They have a seximal, did I spell that right? Seximal system based on sexagesimal, whatever, based on 60. Uh, And I've got it written down there. Should I erase this so I don't have something written on the board incorrectly? Uh, But uh, you can see it right there. They're all based on 60, coming out of the Assyrian Babylonian Empire. Uh, And one talent is equal to 60 minas, and 60 minas are equal to 3,600 uh, shekels. And that is how, that's, how, that's how that all works right there. And this would be a talent. They've got, okay, one talent it weighs uh, 75 pounds. They've got 100 of these. So you take that times 100. They've got 3.75 ton of silver. The credit card includes 3.75, three and three quarters ton of silver is that's how much you're going to need. I did a little, just plugged it into a little website on my, while I studied it and cut and pasted right there. Uh, 3.7 ton, you see that? A unit of silver in the U.S. right now today is $2,497,031, something like that. And I just did that real quick on the internet. Also, a bath is uh, six gallons of oil, and the oil would be used and the wine would be used for the drink offerings or mixing with the meal offerings. And then the donkey, uh, a core is a donkey load, which is 6.5 bushels, or about 6,550 bushels. And all of that is going to be meal offerings or oil and wine to mix with or pour out. And then the silver, you can buy the bulls, whatever you're going to need to do, you'll be able to buy that. And that's, that's what he's sending back just to offer in the temple. Now right there, you can see how becoming a priest... Uh, could be a, a little corrupting because you've got all the kings sending you 3.75 ton of silver. Yeah, you're supposed to spend it on the temple. Okay, I'll spend it on the temple. It's like, who's doing the oversight? I mean, there could be corruption. Uh, you're going to get into the New Testament, you're going to see great corruption. Jesus is going to turn the tables over and, and, and condemn it. Okay, chapter 7, verse 23. Whatever is decreed, Whatever is decreed by God of heaven, let it be done. In other words, whatever his law says you're supposed to do, let it be done in full of the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Now again, some commentators say he's concerned about the wrath coming out of Egypt. Because remember, at this time, there's no Persians in Egypt. The Persians have been driven out. They fled Egypt, and the closest they can get is Judea. You know, and the wilderness right down there. And so he maybe is trying to build a buffer zone. That's when Ezra comes, hey, can I go back? 
Yes, go back and build me a buffer zone and make that God happy because I'm losing territory. That may happen. I mean, that would be uh, with the, within that 12. That's the same 12, the same year. That's all taking place. Um, we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll. So beginning right here in chapter 7, verse 21, he's writing these officials on this side of the Euphrates, how much they can spend, how much you've got to give them. And also, when they get all settled in, understand, I tell you, you can't charge these priests anything. You can't tax them. You can't have some kind of customs. We also notify that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and other servants of this house of God. So they have their tax exemption right there. And you can just see Ezra getting involved in this letter. But again, it's typical. I can show you other places the Persians did the same thing. Or Antiochus III, one of the solution leaders, uh, he did the same thing, exempt the priest from paying taxes. Now, chapter 7, verse 25, we switch subjects or topics here, and we now speak to Ezra. And you, Ezra, see, first of all, he gives them the, the purpose. Then he talks to the officials over here. And there may have been other paperwork going with this. I mean, there may have been now, when they get there, hand them this document. There may have been more details, like a purchase order or something. Uh, we don't have that, and that's, that's an assumption. Uh, but then in the letter, he's giving, for public reading, he's telling Ezra what to do. So this would be something that Ezra could be passing around. There may be other documentations with it. So when, when you read the public letter, here's the details that go to someone privately. There may have been more that Ezra had privately from the king but this is what he puts in this public letter and you ezra according to the wisdom of your god that is in your hand he's supposed to appoint magistrates and judges now and, and notice where he's doing this this is hard to understand hard to believe uh but it may explain some things because there's gonna be several times a, a long period of time where ezra is going to be there but you don't hear anything about him and then he also he shows back up with nehemiah on this side of the Euphrates River, he is supposed to appoint uh, magistrates and judges <coughs> who may, may judge all the people in the province of beyond the river, of trans-Euphrates. That's not Judea. That's everything on this side of the Euphrates River. It's like, King, did, did you mean that he's in charge of the entire judicial system on this side of the Euphrates? I mean, that's what the letter says. I mean, we think he's going back to a little town in Judea with a little bitty box building called the temple, and he's going to be make me. But he may be, wherever the Jews are at, he may be coming by and checking up on them. And he's going to establish the synagogue system. He's going to establish the, the exegetical system of teaching. But if we read this, he's going to be appointing the judges in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. So you're going to find, is he talking about all the people? Or is he talking just the Jews who are associated with it? Whoever will not obey the law of your, watch this, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, whoever will not obey the law of Yahweh and the law of Artaxerxes, let judgment be strictly executed on him by these judges. Ezra's appointing judges to execute judgment on people that not just don't follow the law of Moses, He's talking about the law of the Persians. I mean, it's just not religious law. It's secular law. It's the whole 
All of these things are important. The, the Persians wanted law and order. They wanted morality. They wanted the gods pleased. And if, you're gonna, if they don't know this, teach them. Then once they understand it, practice it. And then hire judges or appoint judges that if they can find people violating the law of God or the law of Artaxerxes, then whether for death or for banishment, confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. You've got four levels. You can, you can take their stuff away. You can put them in prison. You can banish them from the empire or you can execute them. But I do not want chaos. I've got chaos in the West. I've got chaos in Egypt. I don't need chaos getting any further into my kingdom. Uh, and that is how that letter ends right there with an address to Ezra. Uh, and I point number seven. Okay, uh, point seven there. You can see Darius doing the same thing with a, there's documents of a, a priest in Egypt. But with, during Darius's time here being told the same thing. To find wise men amongst you. Go back and find out the laws of ancient Egypt. What are you supposed to be doing? How are you supposed to be living? And establish those. So what Ezra's doing, we see it being done throughout the empire in different locations of establishing the local law and the law of the Persians. Now again, we know that the law of God is universal, but the law of Moses, of course, was given to the Jewish people. It wasn't given to the Assyrians. The law of Moses, as we can see, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he didn't bring a copy of the scrolls with him and say, you need to go to Jerusalem and worship. He, he, he appealed to general revelation, as do many of the prophets, for the Gentiles. <clears throat> so the Persians are, are looking at this as being the local law of the Jews, and we can support that, although we know that God's got a universal law. But that would fall under basically the law of the Persians, what is right and what is wrong. And if this government, this empire, doesn't establish general revelation principles that are in line with God, that government will be overthrown, as we saw the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and eventually the Persians are going to fall. Uh, and so that's what's taking place there. And then, chap, we'll quit with this, chapter 7, verse 27. Uh, that's the letter's over. And the first word in chapter 7, verse 27, is the word blessed. It's a Hebrew word. Ezra now goes back to writing in Hebrew, and he goes into first person. And now for the first time in the book of Ezra, for the first time in the book of Ezra, you've got Ezra writing me, I, talking from first person. Just like you see in the book of Acts, it's all they, them, Paul went and did these things. And that at a certain point where Paul catches up with Luke, Luke joins them. After that point, they, he turns to us and we because Luke was with them the rest of the journey. So you can see exactly where Luke picks up in the historical document of Acts. Same thing here, chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Meaning, this was amazing. God put this in Artaxerxes' heart to let us do this. To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me, Ezra, see, first person, me, his steadfast love before the king. Meaning, he could have walked in and made this suggestion and ended up being exiled or banished or confiscated or just like Nehemiah when he's standing before Artaxerxes he's the king says you look sad what's wrong it's like also it's like oh no this is not going to go well and he had to go ahead and he and it says I said a quick prayer and then began 
And Artaxerxes showed him favor, and Nehemiah had the same thing. So Ezra is recognizing that, the, that God was working in the king, showing a favor the, before the king and his counselors. So you should have uh, uh, figured that Ezra, if he stood before Artaxerxes, wasn't just standing before one man, but was standing before him and those seven counselors who were advising the king, and he had to sell not just the president of the company, but the whole board on the idea. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So he says, I saw that God was hand, he says, it worked. And the only reason it worked was God's hand was with me, so I began to go around and collect men to go back to Jerusalem with me and fulfill this decree. And now, chapter 8, we're going to see him talk about the journey. And if you thought this was exciting, oh boy, the details of the number of people that are coming back and their names and their families and the days that they traveled is going to really thrill you. So if you enjoyed chapter 7, chapter 8 is coming. I'll pray and we're free to go. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We do ask that we would understand them, that we would apply it to our own lives and realize that you are a God that is controlling history, that is directing history and has us in the middle of it doing our part. We ask that we would be faithful to you and not compromise, but do the things you've called us to. Even if we do not understand all the moving parts, we want to realize that we are walking in your ways at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.